You're listening to Find Your Voice, a podcast made in collaboration with the independent federal member for Goldstein, Zoe Daniel. This podcast is recorded on the traditional land of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to season two of Find Your Voice. I'm Zoe Daniel, the member for Goldstein in Victoria, and this is a podcast that we started ahead of the 2022 federal election to discuss policy issues affecting both Goldstein and Australia. Now that the election is behind us, I'm keen to bring the podcast with us into this new phase. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet. In my case, that's the Bunurung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present, land that was never ceded. Today, we'll be discussing the energy crisis we're facing here in Australia. And Lynn Gallagher is the CEO of Energy Consumers Australia, the national advocacy organisation contributing to shaping Australia's energy future for households and small businesses. I'll also be talking with Sarah McNamara, the CEO of the Australian Energy Council later in this episode. So do stay with me. Lynn, first, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Zoe, and congratulations. Thank you so much. Now let's get to energy and the contributing factors that are putting pressure on our national energy system and the impact that's having on Australian consumers and businesses. Well, I think this has been a very worrying time for the the last month uh, for households and small business, and they've had worries on a number of fronts, and then I can talk a little bit about how we got here. Uh, But what's happened is households uh, from today will be paying more for their electricity and more for their gas and around the country uh, significantly more. Uh, in Victoria, uh, it's, it's 5% for the you know, default price, which is the sort of safety net price, but people may experience price rises much more than that. And we all know that it's cold winter. Uh, so people are about to have um, bigger winter bills and with everything else that's going on, Um, They're very worried about cost of living and whether they'll be able to afford their bills. And also people are telling me they're not only worried, if they're worried for themselves, they're also worried for their neighbours, for their friends, for their family. Um, Some of us are uh, perhaps less worried or have more buffers and more financial resilience, but there are a lot of us in the community that we're aware of that are struggling. So how we got here uh, was a combination of things to do with, we still rely largely on coal and gas in Australia for our generation. Certainly have a large amount of wind and solar, which is fantastic, but the costs of fossil fuels have gone through the roof, uh, as we know, because of the land war in Ukraine. And also we've had floods, which have flooded coal mines we've had rail lines break, uh, we've had power, unplanned power outages because the coal plant's old, uh, and a cold winter. So all of those things have created this sort of perfect storm that have made us realise how vulnerable we are. Mm. So against the backdrop of all of those things, and we have short-term and long-term issues there, we have local and domestic factors as well as international factors affecting our energy market. How then do you give people certainty in the short term and and even can you? Well, I think it's a great point uh, because what people, uh, what I hear from people when I, you know, talk to them, when we uh, engage with them in their community, when they call in, when I'm on radio, 
what they're saying is they do want some sense of control, some sense of certainty. Uh, I was reading something you wrote recently about small business. It's, it's uncertainty that actually creates the sense in which I can't manage this, I'm not sure I can survive this. Where that's going to come from is it's not going to come from in the near term from, uh, from the cost of grid supplied electricity and gas. Um, those factors that are driving up prices are here for a while. Prices are going to stay up uh, for a while. We also heard yesterday that the cost of investing in the renewable energy future we all want uh, is $320 billion, um, a lot of which will have to be invested in the next decade. So we're not going to see prices in the near term come down uh, just you know with all of those kinds of factors driving it. Where people can get some certainty in cost uh, and control over their costs is what they actually do in their home and and in their business, um, we can uh, support people to use less energy, not go without energy. No one wants to go without energy they need, um, but to be more energy wise uh, and also to use electricity when it's cheaper. Um, we all know that solar is abundant during the day and we're not actually taking uh, as much advantage of it as we could. Are we locked into a paradigm where there's short-term pain for long-term gain and that's an inevitable outlook over the next decade, let's say? It's a good question and I think people might be willing to make that kind of uh, trade-off, if you like, that you know there's a necessary cost to get to the better future. What I would say about that, though, is that's exactly where we started from in, the, in a, a decade ago. So we had a huge investment wave uh, that raised the cost of electricity in Australia. Electricity has never been more expensive in Australia, historically. This is the highest level of electricity prices ever. I think the community wants uh, governments, leaders, uh, industry, uh, people like myself to, uh, to find a way to navigate having all three things um, delivered, affordability, reliability and, and abundant clean energy. Uh, I don't think we have the social licence and I don't think we have the consumer trust uh, to actually ask them to say, well, you know, this is the necessary price of a better future. They want us to deliver all three things. Agree. And it, also, it's all well and good to say it, isn't it? But someone has to find the money. And if you're a consumer or a small business, it, it's not a simple equation to just suddenly find money that you didn't have. Yeah, exactly right. And and in a way, just in just the sort of microcosm or the local level of what, um, you know, you've just asked about, you know, the costs of navigating to a you know better future with large investment. Let's not forget consumers are being asked to make investment. It's investment that they may want, but it is also, you know, they will be replacing their fossil fuel vehicles with electric vehicles. Um, they are investing in solar. We have 3 million uh, homes that have solar on the roof and that'll be 6 million in the next decade. Uh, we're also uh, looking at uh, communities and consumers investing in local storage. So there's a huge wave of investment as well that will be local that will be in, uh, you know, being made by consumers. And we need to respect that investment and make sure as well that 
um, people are getting uh, the value from that investment and the returns on that investment as well. To what extent do you think that lack of cooperation between state and federal governments has contributed to where we are? It's been a huge problem. Uh, as, a national, uh, as a national advocacy organisation, I've found myself having to work in six states, two territories and nationally, uh, and in a way try and you know, bridge that divide on behalf of the people you know, we speak to and speak for. Uh, I think um, with the election, I think people voted with their feet uh, for climate for addressing climate change and I think for a better future. I mean, y- yourself, the election of the community independence, um, you know, Greens, the Greens Party had an increase in their vote. I think what people are voting for is more cooperation, more coordination, solving it together rather than thinking that one party or one level of government uh, has all the answers. Mm. Yeah, I, I I definitely see where you're going with that. I wonder about this issue of the climate wars being over. I feel like we're at a tipping point there that if we and if we talk about leadership, I include myself and yourself collectively in that. If we don't get this right, then it could actually worsen that climate war in many ways. I agree. We, uh, we do regular surveys with people and ask them these kinds of questions um, about their experience, their lived experience of um, the energy system, including you know, the transition aspects of that. And while there's uh, some hope amongst a segment of the community, there's about a third of people um, think that we can navigate uh, we can do the transition in the next decade, and we should. Um, there's also a significant no, a proportion of people who actually feel that we're never going to solve this problem. This is going to be really difficult. So I think unless, um, as you say, I think all of us who have a leadership role need to both be thinking at a policy level, but also how we speak consistently to the community and, and think about how we build their trust Um, Because this is only going to happen, uh, we're only going to manage to deliver affordability, reliability and clean energy uh, if there's a lot of consumer trust and goodwill. And and it's, you know, events like the last three weeks, four weeks, really potentially damage consumer trust. Uh, I heard a story from one consumer who said to me, you know, these people who are managing this system, they they can't manage it. Uh, I can't really afford solar. Uh, but I'm going to go and buy solar now. Like that—that's it. Like you know, I, I can't trust uh, the the people running the system to to deliver what I need. So that kind of anxiety and fear. The other thing I'd just like to add to that too is what I worry about as well um, when I listen to consumers and the decisions they make and the choices they want to make is. We can't have a transition where people who are fortunate enough to have solar or own their own home um, have uh, have an ability to, you know, self look after their needs to, and their family's needs to some extent. And then all the people who are renting, uh, people who are most financially vulnerable, uh, people who live in apartments, 
basically paying uh, paying the full costs of the grid. So we also need, uh, we can't widen the energy divide. If anything, we need to try and narrow the energy divide if we can, so that uh, the transition is seen as one that's just and fair uh, and not just based on whether you can afford to have solar or early adopters of electric vehicles. Yeah, I think that's absolutely critical. And I, I do think that community battery projects, for example, come in to that, that you can if, set up a project where everyone benefits, even if they're not necessarily a party to a shareholder scheme, for example, but if they're in that area, they would still get the benefit of that energy storage. Yeah, look, it's a great uh, it's a great initiative. Uh, they've certainly made Victoria has certainly um, been doing some very innovative stuff. Um, I'm about to go and visit the um, Yarra Energy Foundation North Fitzroy Battery in two weeks, um, and th- there's lots of uh, ways in which I guess community batteries can be sort of owned and delivered. But the key thing that I agree with you that you've just said is it. The, the thing that really excites people is when they all feel that they're participating in it, that it is part of their neighbourhood, that they get to benefit, that it's not something that's sitting there that only benefits people with solar or only benefits certain um, parts of the community. It, it really is a sort of very, um, you know, it's resonating with people that this is something that's part of our neighbourhood. Um, and so I think um, there's real value in, in seeing more of that. And I know that uh, it's certainly a platform of the Labor Party and I'd like to see them do it uh, do it well and consistent with the kind of, you know, community values that people attach to that rather than seeing it, and I'm not saying they do, but rather than seeing it, you know, it's just sort of let's uh, roll out a nice bit of technology you know, and that's the key thing to a lot of things that are happening is we have to recognise, you know, solar is not just a technology. It To the people who buy it, it represents a whole set of values. It represents self-sufficiency, it represents independence, it represents contributing to their community. Um, so if we don't understand this is not a, just a technology transition, this is a society-wide um, transformation and requires people to feel a sense of participation and inclusion. Mm. Yeah, interesting how all these things intersect in that I think COVID obviously contributed to people tapping more into their local community and reconnecting with community in the modern era. You've now seen a bunch of community independence elected, which I think is deeply interconnected with the COVID experience and then I think that flows through to things like community battery projects because people have reconnected with their community and they can see the potential of doing things within their community rather than having to be part of a a sort of national picture if you like. Yeah I think that's right I mean you know our media the way we're you know I guess pre-pandemic we're all very very busy we had busy lives you know we went off to work during the day and you know we're all a bit maybe disconnected from a lot of things um and maybe that's more true in in big cities I mean you live in Melbourne which is a large city and big city and I live in Sydney 10 million Australians live in those two cities so I think we re- rediscovered the power of the local and and neighbours and being concerned about neighbours and you know, just in my community as well, I hadn't realised quite how diverse we are. Um, And watching people look out for each other 
and I think we need to translate that over into then how we navigate the energy system. This is a complex set of things that have to be brought together and it's not as simple as, you know, just investors raising $320 billion or building 10,000 kilometres of transmission lines. That's, that's you know, necessary. But you know, those communities where the transmission lines are going to be built have a sense of community. And how do we, how does the, um, how does that investment in that and the location of those transmission wires and poles and wires uh, be part, be accepted and seen as a positive thing for that community, not as a negative thing for that community? Lynn, I'm about to talk to Sarah McNamara, as I mentioned, and I wanted to finish with you on this revenue issue because one of the things that I've raised is the idea of implementing a, a price equalisation levy on the windfall that the gas exporters are, are getting because of the war in Ukraine. Given what you've said about the amount of money that this transition is going to cost, it seems to me that that's one way of dragging some unexpected revenue into the system. From your perspective as someone who deals with consumers and businesses and sort of taps the the zeitgeist, what do you think the level of support might be around that kind of initiative? Yeah, I think consumers, uh, you know, people, families who are doing it tough, who are experiencing the downsides um, of um, what's happening at the moment, would think that's fair enough to me. One of the things in our research that people say is they are willing to, um, you know, share some of the load, take some of the pain themselves if they feel there's what you know what I might call reciprocity. In other words, that industry, government are sharing the costs or somehow um, not somehow profiting while people are struggling. Um, So I think your proposal um, taps into that. I think it's a very valid um, thing to be explored. I used to work in tax policy many years ago when I was much, much younger, and it's often hard to do. Um, But leaving that aside, from from a consumer community perspective, I think they'd think that's just fair enough. I mean, if people are making uh, super profits, whatever you want to call it, um, but, you know, somebody's, uh, you know, these electricity, pri- you know, the fact that we pay world parity prices, um, there, there are um, people that are organisations, governments included as well, that in some ways are benefiting from additional revenue. So I think they would expect that there's some sharing of the load. Lynn Gallagher is the CEO of Energy Consumers Australia. Lynn, thanks so much for joining us on Find Your Voice. It was great. Thanks for having me, Zoe. Well, you're listening to Find Your Voice. This is a podcast about issues affecting Goldstein and Australia. I'm Zoe Daniel, the member for Goldstein. And my second guest is Sarah McNamara, who's the Chief Executive of the Australian Energy Council, which represents 20 major electricity and downstream natural gas businesses operating in the retail energy markets. And these businesses collectively generate the overwhelming majority of electricity in Australia and sell gas and electricity to over 10 million homes and businesses. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, our national energy system has hit a a bit of a bump uh, over the last few weeks. Has this been kind of the perfect storm or do you think it's to do with lack of planning and action over time that's got us to this point? Well, there is no one reason why uh, what happened um, recently in the electricity system happened. It really, I think, 
describing it as a perfect storm is quite accurate. We had a lot of pressure on uh, commodity prices internationally because of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. So international events like that obviously unable to be anticipated or, or controlled from the domestic market here in Australia. But added to that, um, it was really unfortunate timing that uh, a few coal units needed to go off for maintenance, um, and that's you know essentially emergency sort of repairs, uh, and several of them went off at a time, and they just we don't normally have that many units out. At one point, we had about 30%. Um, of our coal generation out for maintenance, uh, which is really sort of un unprecedented. Uh, and additionally, it's happening during a cold snap and at a time when we're not seeing as much wind and solar step up because, because of the weather conditions. Um, so all of those things contributed to a really uh, difficult situation. There were some added transport issues um, because of the floods, uh, trying to get the coal trains to um, some of the power stations as well. Um, so it really was just a, a very stressful environment for the generators and for the market operator, um, trying to make sure we were, were keeping the lights on in these sort of constraints supply uh, circumstances. Do you think we're through the worst of it for the moment? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, no one can guarantee. Well, firstly, the light stayed on. There wasn't mass load shedding. There weren't blackouts. Uh, it was a, you know, absolutely undeniably a stressful situation. But I think people should remember that the system itself didn't break down. The system coped, um, stressed out as it was. Um, secondly, uh, most of the coal plant that was out for maintenance is now back online. Um, last time I checked, I think there's only about 10% um, of coal plant out at the moment. So that's actually totally manageable compared to the 30% uh, we saw during the crisis time. Um, and the weather, you know, I mean, it will start, as it starts to get warmer, then there's slightly less demand on the system as well, and wind and solar start to step up a bit more. So there are a few uh, indicators, I think, that would suggest we're not going to see that same issue occur again this year, but um, there are no guarantees. But the important thing, I think, also is to say that as an industry and working with the market operator, we've all learned something from a really unprecedented challenge. Um, so if it happens again, um, there are likely to be slightly different approaches on how to manage it, which will mean things move uh, perhaps in a more smooth way um, in order to keep the system supported. So I think there are going to be learnings from it that will do us all some good um, in, if it occurs again. Yeah, so let's go into that. I mean, notwithstanding the, the obvious cost impact on consumers and, and businesses, it, it's arguable that given that the industry was able to navigate it without the lights going off, that it, it was kind of a positive thing because it, it has provided those learnings for you. What are they, do you think? Look, I, I, I'd probably respectfully disagree that it, that it was a positive um, crisis. Um, it really, it kind of, we'd rather not have had it happen at all. Um, the fact that it has happened, though, has exposed um, some really interesting, well, for us in the industry, interesting problems with the way the market rules work. And that's because when the national electricity market was set up in 1998, there was an incredibly detailed set of rules um, to govern it, of course, put in place. And that's because the states all had to join together to set the market up nationally. Um, those rules are sort of uh, improved on an iterative basis over time, but the rules that applied um, to a 
high price event, which is what kick-started this whole thing. Um, the rules dictate that if prices are incredibly high for seven days, then a price cap kicks in. Um, those rules have not really been tested um, before uh, in a widespread way. They were, and in 1998, when the designers of the market sat down to put that stuff together, they were kind of envisaging a summer heatwave peak uh, for a few hours or a couple of days in a discrete jurisdiction. Um, that was what they had in mind. What happened here was essentially a winter supply drought over weeks um, that involved the whole national grid. Um, so the rules didn't work so well for that um, application. And, you know, 22 years down the track, you know, it's totally understandable that we might need to take a second look at them because, of course, in 1998, no one anticipated would be in the energy market transition we're in at the moment. Hmm. So what will likely happen now, um, and, you know, everyone in the industry and, and in the market bodies uh, and with government as well, we're all talking about how we could improve the rules to enable the bidding and dispatch of generation into the market in a tight supply crisis type situation to work more, more smoothly than it did. Mm. The price cap where once it was uh, once it was automatically triggered is set at $300. Um, that made life very difficult for generators whose actual costs per megawatt hour were more like $450 in the case of gas-fired generation. Um, so that price cap might be something uh, we likely need to look at. Additionally, the way bidding and dispatch rules in a price cap environment uh, work um, is different to the way the market's working um, today, for example. Mm. Um, and essentially, it's, it's all um, you know terribly technical, but essentially what it means is once you bid in in a price cap environment, you essentially have to stay in the market until your fuel supplies run out. And that makes life very difficult. Remember, we're in a supply constraint environment. Generators were literally ringing the market operator's control room and saying, look, guys, if we come in now and stay in, um, we're not going to have enough for the peak, the peak demand, you know, tonight or tomorrow morning or, or whenever. And so the market operator was saying, yep, we understand that issue. We know that that generator has supply, a certain amount of supply. You stay out of the bid and we'll tap you on the shoulder and require you to come in. That way we get more control of you moving in and out of the market in that price cap environment. And, of course, that, the problem with that was it just made life incredibly stressful um, for the market operator that was forced to try and develop almost perfect vision of capacity everywhere in the market. Um, and the generators were really stressed out because they were dealing with a circumstance they hadn't dealt with before. Mm. Um, and then everyone trying to get the maintenance works completed on the, um, the plant that was out was also working 24-7. Um, because people who work at these plants, you know, they do feel uh, a real responsibility um, to deliver an essential service. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, in saying it's a positive uh, in some ways, I'd, I'd only argue that in hindsight, once you've survived a crisis, it exposes flaws that you then get to pull apart in exactly the way that you have, at least being somewhat on the other end of it. What about from a legislative perspective in terms of the ministerial levers, for example, do you see room or necessity for change there? Well, if there are to be changes to the market rules, um, there are two... I mean, the, the short answer is there might be opportunity for ministers to make some changes. 
because the way you amend the market rules um, is either by a stakeholder or an individual or a market body making a rule change application or in the alternative, ministers can get together and agree to change an aspect of the rules as well. Um, the problem with that um, is you need all of the state minister, energy ministers to agree along with the federal minister. And naturally that tends to be um, not a foregone conclusion. But if ministers did want to get together and for example, amend the price cap, um, that would be the most efficient way to resolve what seems to us to be a pretty clear flaw in the market rules at the moment. Because um, what we've got now, of course, is a long tail of compensation that gets paid under the rules to generators who are essentially bidding in at sort of extreme, at an extreme loss. Um, ministers are meeting on the 20th of, of July. I don't doubt that they'll be discussing this then. And between then and now, there might be um, a rule change um, application made by a third party, which would kickstart uh, what is often a very long process, um, rule change, rule changes. The Market Commission has to run quite, quite um, appropriately, has to run a really long consultation process on how to change rules. And really deliberately, I think the founders of the market made changes to the rules difficult because they wanted stability in the rules and that things wouldn't be changed on a whim and that uh, rules would only be changed when there was a really deep kind of cost benefit analysis of, of how they were going to work. Mm. Um, now, there might be an expedited rule change process. That's another option. That means the process would take about seven or eight weeks. Um, uh, but it would be open for ministers to step in and, and consider their options. Um, I know that they're meeting in a few weeks' time. I'm sure they'll be talking about this crisis. And to your point, Zoe, um, you don't want to waste a crisis. And um, as Homer Simpson said, I think he called it crisis-tunity. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you need to see the benefits that can come of the learnings you've had, and, and I'm sure ministers will be keen to do that. Well, yes, because we can't assume that this won't happen again. No. And I think that one thing that I have lingering around in the back of my mind is that we can't assume that the war in Ukraine is going to be a short, sharp conflict and nor that it will be quarantined. Anything could happen that's completely out of our control from a geopolitical perspective. So in that context, what's your thinking around things like quarantining domestic gas supply for safety nets, something that I've talked about when you and I were on Q&A taxing windfall profits to underpin uh, housing, for example, um, supporting people's energy bills, those sorts of measures. Where do you sit on those sorts of things? Well, I think um, the idea of a domestic gas reservation, for example, those sorts of policy proposals, um, you know, sound positive from an outcomes perspective, but to implement them, you know, as you'd appreciate, Zoe, um, there's a lot of difficulty um, and a lot of challenge. Um, if a domestic gas policy were to apply to prospective gas developments, then I think that is uh, easier for a government to implement rather than a policy which would see them break into existing contracts because governments are always understandably and appropriately concerned about sovereign risk um, and what, well, what you're doing to the actual economy as sort of unintended consequences if you do try and break into those contracts. And, you know, it, it has been an issue, particularly in gas, um, 
for, 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 for a long time. And that's where the domestic gas um, security mechanism device was that it was that this that sort of context in which it, it was developed, but um, as we know, you know that that has to go through a period of consultation, you know, i.e., to respect um, the commercial arrangements that are already in place, and, and isn't something that's a, a quick fix at all. Wouldn't be able to be triggered until next early next year at the earliest. So, mm. I am sceptical. I, I, I don't. I am sceptical about the ability to implement a policy that would be a silver bullet fix or, or a real improvement because these policy areas are incredibly difficult and, and beset by um, commercial and sovereign risk issues, which are really very real and appropriately the government would be worried about them. Sarah, just before I let you go, I'm curious what you think at a sort of, um, I don't know if I want to use the word ideological but um, level, but what you think this crisis has done to the, the sort of mentality of Australians but also industry around moving into renewables. The election was supposed to end the climate wars. Has this, do you think, made people want to execute that task faster in terms of moving into renewable energy or has it injected doubt into the mentality of the nation around that process? Zoe, I think that's an excellent question. Um, I, I suppose it's not, I, I don't have a clear read on, on how the community feels. I, I do think people felt in general that the supply crisis we experienced um, was indicative of the fact that we weren't investing enough in renewables. Um, I'd probably, I don't entirely agree with that proposition. I mean, I do think the last 10 years, really, of, of policy vacuum um, have been unfortunate and we would be in a better position today if we'd had some more policy stability so investors would have had more confidence and, you know, I, I do think that's true. But at the moment, um, with the best will in the world, the technology doesn't exist to move this energy transition forward at a galloping pace. We're already going at an advanced pace. Um, and you would have seen from the market operators integrated system plan released yesterday, you know, there's a lot of complex coordination that needs to occur because when we invest in renewables, we need to invest in transmission um, and we need to invest in storage. And uh, unfortunately, Australia is, you know, cutting edge in terms of our investment in renewables, particularly solar PV, um, for example. But the storage that sits behind that is not yet um, at a depth and scope and commerciality, if you like, to support the whole grid, um, which is why we're doing this transition over time and why we're going to see coal and gas still part of our system into the 2030s. So I think people, if I were um, speaking to people generally, I would say that this supply crisis is evidence of the challenges that are before us and of the complexity of the challenge that's before us and of the delicate nature of the electricity grid. Um, people should feel assured that we are continuing to invest in renewables and we're pulling ourselves along this energy market transition at pace. But the transition isn't costless um, and it's not without its challenges. And uh, unfortunately, at the moment, we're seeing upward pressure on energy prices. So what would be fantastic is if people start to become a bit more aware of how they're using energy in their home and speak to their retailer, if I can put a plug in, to make sure they're on the cheapest um, deal for their circumstances. Because what we don't want to see is households, and particularly you know, financially vulnerable households, experiencing bill shocks this winter. 
Absolutely. Sarah McNamara is the Chief Executive of the Australian Energy Council. Sarah, thanks for helping us unpack this today. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks everyone for joining us for this episode of Find Your Voice. You can learn more about Zoe and her work in the Australian Parliament at zoedaniel.com.au. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is authorised by Zoe Daniel, 677 Nepean Highway, Brighton East, Victoria. Victoria.